All right, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35. Pages turning. It's a good, good sound to hear. You know, one of the beautiful things about Scripture um, is how it shows the sin of its heroes. And, and it seems like chapter after chapter, we have just been seeing one bad thing after another with Jacob. And, and it's, it's really things like these that, although you go, why is this even in here? And, and what does this mean? And how does this apply to my life today? Uh, one of the things that in seeing things like this is that you have to understand that, that these are the kinds of things that lead to the authenticity of the scriptures. Nobody writes these things about their heroes. Jacob would be named Israel. And who would write these things about Israel and the sinful ways that he had uh, if, if indeed it wasn't just from God? And so we get to chapter 35, and I've been pretty hard on Jacob for a while now, but this is kind of a breath of fresh air because um, we see how Jacob responds to really difficult things. And so we're going to see in Jacob again that, that there's just a lot of bad things that happen. But his response is different. In fact, there are four tragic events in Jacob's life, and, and, and yet when most pastors preach this text, and they, they title sermons or commentaries about it, they always have the word revival in there. And I think it's interesting, and, uh, because it's really not a revival in terms of, of all these wonderful things happening, and all these people get saved, and all this great stuff. It's just Jacob's heart, you can see that he is just being revived. And so we don't really know how much time elapses between Genesis 34 and Genesis 35. Okay, sometime obviously does, but we don't know how much of that, and uh, we can only guess at that. Um, what we do know is that God shows up. He shows up out of nowhere in verse 1, and so I'm just going to read a portion of our text this morning, uh, verses 1 to 8, and then we'll go back through and, and pick it apart, all, the whole chapter. Um, all right, let's read Genesis 35, beginning... In verse 1, then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away your foreign gods, which were among you, purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror among the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob went to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Re Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak, and it was named Alon Bakuth. Now when Jacob initially ran away from home, remember, he thought he'd never see his, fa his, his father again. His mom, Rebekah, who had kind of masterminded the plan for him to steal his brother's uh, blessing, uh, told him that she would get word to him after his father died, but she never did. Why? Well, because he hadn't died yet. 
And so now God calls, calls him from Shechem. And, and, and when you think, okay, well, I wonder how long the journey was, right? Going into Christmas time, we always talk about the, the wise men, how long of a journey they had. From Shechem to Bethel is about 15 miles south. Okay, so it's not a real far journey in the way we think of far journeys, right? But that's a far journey if you've got a bunch of kids and a bunch of livestock and everything else. Um, so let's just start in verse 1. And this is really a fascinating text. Um, I think, I think uh, I've certainly gotten so much out of it this week. And there's tons of application, uh, but I only picked a few. Uh, so then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now remember, Bethel is where God appeared to him uh, originally after he had stolen his brother's blessing. Remember, he was running away from, uh, from him and, and Esau wanted to kill him and, and he ran and ran and ran and ran. He couldn't run anymore and, and then he fell asleep. And he's in a deep sleep. And he has this amazing dream of a ladder that goes from earth to heaven and talks about angels ascending and descending on it. And in that dream, God reiterated the promises that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac about giving him a descendants and land and, and blessing all the nations uh, through him. And so look at Jacob's reply to these, these promises. Genesis 28, verse 20. So then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, Okay, and then it's implied, if he will keep me on this journey that I take, if he will give me food to eat and garments to, to wear, and if I return to my father's house safely, then the Lord will be my God. Sounds kind of bad when you read it like that, doesn't it? It sounds kind of manipulative. I don't know if it is or not, but uh, that's certainly how it sounds. And, and then he says, this stone, which, which I have set up as a pillar... This original stone, remember, this was the pillow. He had a pillow, and he put the pillow, made his pillow into an altar now instead of just a stone. He said, this, this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Again, it sounds kind of manipulative, right? Verse, verse 1, though, is God collecting on the vows. Jacob, you said, you said, uh, I'm gonna, you're going to do all these things for you, for me. You're going to make Yahweh your God. You're going to, you're going to make Bethel God's house. And, and oh, by the way, you're going to tithe too. Jacob, remember when you said that? Now, it's been a long time since, since these vows were made. So, so I think God's kind of reminding him of his vows. Well, God has a response as well. And point number one in your note taken outline is the command. The command. Now understand, Jacob is where he is because of decisions that he made. His compromise in his life is ultimately what led to Dino's defilement. His sons committing genocide against the Shechemite people are because of the compromises that Jacob made to live in Shechem rather than to go to Bethel where God had told him to go. And so when he left Padan Aram, he left because God had called him out of there and he called him to go to Bethel. But he didn't go to Bethel, remember? He went to Succoth, and he stayed there for a little while, and, and, and then that was outside the promised land. And, and then he moves closer to Bethel. He moves to Shechem. Well, that decision, even though you may think, well, I'm closer to God than I was before. I'm closer to, being, to obeying God than I did before. That was tragic. 
that decision was tragic. It led to what happened with, with Dinah. It led to what happened with, um, with his two sons, Simeon and Levi, as well. And so God gives them two commands in this first verse. I don't know if you saw them or not. The first command is go up to Bethel. The second command is make an altar. So the term Bethel means house of God. And so he commands him first to, to go to the house of God and build an altar there. Listen, this is a command that he's given to prioritize worship. Go to Bethel. Go to the house of God. Like, Jacob, I know you need water, but before you dig a well, build an altar. Jacob, I, I know you need a place to live, but before building a house or pitching tents, you know what you need to do? You need to build an altar. In other words, prioritize worship. God comes first. He's first before business. He's first before mar our marriages. He's first before our kids. He's first before anything. And I believe that the reason that so many families are falling apart today is that God hasn't been first. There's no priority of worship, even in the church. Yet we gather together as God's people on a Sunday morning to prioritize worship. And this is a beautiful day outside. You know, I, I joke sometimes, it's, it's it, you know, sometimes on Sunday morning I'll get, I'll get text messages and people will say, Mike, the, it's raining so hard out here. I, I, we just can't go to church. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, I'll get a text message and they'll say, Mike, it is so beautiful out. We decided to go to the beach and watch church on the way to the beach. And I think, what kind of weather do we have to have in order to get everybody here? Prioritize worship. He gets first place in everything. Look at verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, and who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so it's a command to, to Jacob and, and to complete vows, and uh, purification has to happen, because you can't approach God any way you like. By the way, I noticed it again this morning. You know, we, there's a pattern that Josh puts together for our worship. Have you noticed that? You notice the pattern that we have? It starts with a call to worship. Right? That's, that's scripture reading, and we typically do a song, and, and then right from there, we have a time of confession. Why? Because you can't just approach God any way you want to. Right? He has a certain way that you approach him. And so point number two is the consecration. The consecration. To consecrate something is to make it sacred, it's to make it holy. In order to prioritize worship, you see what Jacob tells his family? See what Jason, Jacob tells his servants? Get rid of all your idols. Get rid of the idols. Now, you probably read this like I'm reading it, go, wait a second, why do the people of God have idols? Well, some of that can be attributed to Rachel, right? She stole her father's idols. So probably still had them. I'm sure they, they got some idols when, after they killed the Shechemites and took their women and their children, that they probably got their idols as well. 
And Jacob says, you need to get rid of the idols. Why do we have to get rid of the idols? Well, because God doesn't compete with any idol for our affection. He demands exclusive worship. And so his people have to consecrate themselves from idolatrous ways. But it's more than just getting rid of idols. It's, it's, it's consecrating, right? It's, it's a need to purify. You know, we've been pretty tough on Jacob for the past few months, right? And deservedly so, okay? I love how he responds here. I do. It doesn't say much. But before, remember, he was silent when Dinah was defiled. But he's really a spiritual giant here. What's he do? He calls them to personal holiness. And the first thing he does in calling them to personal holiness is, is to tell them to acknowledge their sin. That there has to be a sensitivity to sin. Hey, don't tell me how spiritual you are if your sin doesn't bother you. The, the marks of, of true spirituality, I think, are when you are so sensitive to your sin that you turn from it and pursue holiness. I think we lie to ourselves when, when we think that spiritual maturity is, is educating yourself more in spiritual information. Look, I love information. I love studying the scriptures. I love theology. I love all of that. But true, true maturity is not simply knowing more stuff. True maturity is when you obey the stuff you know. I mean, how often, think about it, when was the last time you sinned because of lack of knowledge? When was the last time you did something wrong because you didn't know it was wrong and you read the scripture and went, oh, I didn't know. Has it ever happened? I think we're more like Paul. Remember Romans 7? I, I, I do the things that I don't want to do. The things I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And the things I know I'm not supposed to do, that's what I end up doing. And so this is really a changed Jacob here. He's encouraging them to, to join him in, in building an altar to God. And he says, this is a God who answered me in my distress. This is the God who, who has been with me everywhere I went. That is huge. That's why this is like a revival passage, because his day of distress started when he ran from Esau 20 plus years ago. And he looks back at that, and he looks at all this stuff that's happened, and he recognizes, wow, God has been with me from, for decades of sin and heartache. He was with him when he was tricked by Laban multiple times. He was with him when, when Jacob made Laban rich and, and had nothing for himself. God was with him when Laban pursued him. God was with him when, when, when God wrestled with him. And God was with him when Esau had a 400-man army to confront him. God never left him. But I would be willing to bet that Jacob would have thought during those times, where's God? Look at verse 4. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Circle those, underline those words, so they gave. You know what that means? They obeyed. Now listen, please don't use this as a, as a proof text for, for not wearing earrings. People use this verse and say, oh, you can't wear earrings because to put these earrings away. That's not what it's saying. The earrings here are charms or, or amulets of, of pagan deities or the rings that were put in the, in the noses or, or on, these, on these pagan deities. 
The point, the, better, the bigger point to be made here is that, is that Jacob buried them so that they would never be used again. He got rid of them. Which brings us to our third point, the commitment. The commitment. So God commands, they consecrate themselves, and they go, they commit to go. Look at verse 5. And as they journeyed, there was, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now listen, in chapter 34, Jacob was silent when Dinah was defiled. He was vocal when, he's, when his sons uh, had revenge on these men. And, and, and now he's, he's, he's worried, right? He's, he's worried that these nations, what are they going to do to us because of what my sons did? And now who's scared? The nations are scared. And I'm sure there was talk among the nations about the brutality of these two boys of Jacob. By the way, he's got eight others at this point, too. You want to mess with them? This is, this is God's protection of them. He did the same thing in Exodus. Look at Exodus 23. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. You realize that sometimes God protects his people by making their enemies terrified of them? And we, we get so scared. Look at verse 6. So Jacob came to Luz. By the way, that, that's just the Canaanite name for Bethel. So, so Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. Because there, was, there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now listen, this is the same place that Jacob had built an altar previously. Right? That was the place where he put the stone pillow and he made it into an altar and now here he is a couple of decades later, right there. It's almost like that he's returned to his first love, isn't it? He obeyed God and built an altar first. He did what he said he's going to do, and, and he names it Bethel. Actually, he names it El Bethel. You remember what Bethel means? The house of God. Good. The house of God. You know what El Bethel means? El is God, right? It means God of the house of God. He is the God of the house of God. And this is really interesting here. It, what it shows us is that Jacob is, is interesting in, in, more interested in the person of the altar than he is of the altar itself. It's God of the house of God. So he's not worshiping the house of God. He's worshiping the person of God. And I look at that for us as a church, and I think, well, we're a church without a building, and so this is a really good lesson for us. What's more important? Is it a church building or a church? A number of years ago, we had a, a local church here, <clears throat> and they, they wanted to merge with us. And they insisted that they had the upper hand, and they didn't say it in those words, but you can just tell that, you know, we need them more than they need us was kind of their idea. And they insisted they had the upper hand because they had a church building and we didn't. And, and I just kind of lovingly told them, I, I'd rather have a church without a building than a building without a church. Right? We worship the God of the house of God. We don't worship the house of God. I don't know what our future is as far as church building is, 
I know we're busting at the seams in most of our Bible studies. I know that we have 350 chairs in here, and we had 250 people last week. And the, the general rule is that when you're at 80% capacity, then, you are, then people will come and they'll say there's no room in that church at 80%. So that means uh, 320 people. So we can grow 70, it's kind of the idea. In reality, we have a lot more chairs that we can still put in here. And so rather than business class seating, we'll put you in an economy and we'll just scoot the chairs together a little bit more. <laughs> I say that and say it seems like we're full, but in reality, we have a lot of room to grow. Now we don't in terms of a lot of our you know, weekly Bible studies, all of our small groups are, are filled to the limit. Uh, most of our Bible studies are, are filled, but come. We'll, we'll find a way, we'll, we'll make it work. But we wanna be wise stewards of what God has entrusted us with. And part of that is knowing that it's better to be a church without a building than a building without a church. And we want to be a people who worship God and not a people who worship the house of God. Does that make sense? All right, verse eight. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak and it was named Alan Bekuth. This is really, you kind of wonder why this is even in there. It kind of seems just out of order, doesn't it? The only other time that we see Deborah is, is, uh, is when Rebecca was leaving her home to, to meet Isaac for the first time. And that was about 140 years ago. Okay, so, so nobody, you know, who's, who's Deborah? And yet it's written in this text. And uh, Genesis 24, verse 59 says, thus they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse. Who's her nurse? Deborah is, with Abraham's servant and all his men. And they were also accompanied by Rebecca's maids. And, and, and Deborah herself was probably really significant to Jacob. I think that's probably why they, they put this in the text. And there was probably real significance with Deborah and Jacob. Maybe she was the one who cared for him as he grew up. You know, there's twins in the house. Anybody who has twins knows we need help, right? It's hard work. And now she's buried under the oak tree they named Alan Bakuth. You know what it means? Oak of weeping. But this was a really sad, traumatic time. And it's Deborah's death that will be the first of four tragic events in this chapter that follow a couple of patterns that we see in Scripture and we see in our lives. I've, I've said this for years, and we've, we've got a whole series that really focus on this. But think about this. When God is working, Satan will start opposing. When God is working, then Satan will start opposing. The second is this. Your greatest spiritual victories are often followed by the temptation for great spiritual defeat. Your greatest spiritual victories are often followed with the temptation for your greatest spiritual defeat. I mean, think about what happens here with Jacob. God shows up in the first verse of chapter 35. Jacob obeys him. Next thing you know, they're, they're turning from idolatry. They're purifying themselves. Jacob commits to God. And as they leave, the nations are terrified of them. And who did that? God did that. God is working. So what happens? Satan's opposing Deborah dies. Big spiritual victory, temptation for defeat. We're going to dig into those ideas deeper in a few minutes, but let's go to verse 9. 
Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. Okay, they, Deborah dies. God appears to Jacob, blesses him. Last week, we saw the, the, the bad fruit of Jacob's disobedience. And what we're going to see this week is the good fruit of his obedience. You know, I've had the, the real privilege of, of walking through some crises in some of your families. And then I've seen you guys just commit to obeying God. Not because it was easy, not because it made sense, not because you wanted to, but you just wanted to obey God. And the next thing you know, God starts blessing you. He blesses you with a church and a church family. He blesses you with, with a loved one who might come to faith in Christ. He blesses you by restoring your marriage. He blesses you while, while give, as, you give vict, or as you have victory over life-dominating sin patterns in your life. But he doesn't always change your circumstances. And yet there's joy because he changes you. Right? That's the goal, right? Not just, not just fixing circumstances, but, but changing us, like changing our heart. Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I mean, you think about the circumstances he was in. And he says, I've actually learned contentment there. And so there's a commitment, number four, now we're going to see the covenant. The covenant. We, fought, we saw a few chapters ago that God changed Jacob's name to Israel. I don't know why I'm so thirsty this morning. Um, and now he affirms um, that name change. Look at verse 10. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called uh, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give uh, the land to your descendants after you. Now God changed his name, you know why? because God changed his life. Jacob is no longer that old scoundrel. He's not the deceiver, the manipulator, the supplanter anymore. He's new. It's like, it's like Simon to Peter. It's new. It's like Saul to Paul. He's new. He's not the old person. And, and to validate these promises, you see what God does? He reminds Jacob. He says, I am God Almighty. In other words, I am El Shaddai. El Shaddai speaks of, of God's ability to supply abundantly. We sing the song, El Shaddai, my provider. But you think, why did God even reiterate these promises to Jacob? Well, I, I think part of it is due to the fact that God was telling Jacob that his decades of sin didn't disqualify him as a child of promise. His calling on him was irreversible. Not because of Jacob, but because he's El Shaddai. He's the Almighty God. He's the one who would be able to provide abundantly for everything Jacob would want and need. That God's going to do the work in him. God's going to do the work through him. I think it, to me, it reminds me of Philippians 1, where he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's not just that he can perfect it. It says he will perfect it. We go, what if I had a past like Jacob? 
Listen, when God saves you, he changes you. We're 20 plus years. Jacob is 100 something years old right now. You don't become a you know, better version of the old person you used to be. You know, you're new, brand new. And now Jacob has a new identity and God's just reminding him, you're not Jacob, you're Israel. You have a new identity and the same is true for us. Ephesians 2 verse 4, he says, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so this, this newness of the, of the Christian life is seen in Jacob. And it's true for us as well. We have a new hope. We have a new family. We have a new purpose for our lives. I like in, in verse 11, he, he says, be fruitful and multiply. I'm thinking, Jacob has 11 sons and a daughter. How much more fruitful are you going to be? I mean, why did God give him this promise? I think part of it is the fact that he needs to pass on this information to his children. I also know that Jacob's going to have another son. So this had to be really encouraging for Jacob because he has lived the majority of his life as a scoundrel. He's, been, he's lived the majority of his life being called the deceiver. And now here's God promising, I'm going to make you a nation and I'm going to give you land and it's the same land that I promised to your father and your grandfather. And it's for you and all of your descendants. And then he adds something in here that we actually don't see him add to, to Abraham or to Isaac. You see what he said? Kings will come from you. Kings. Kings like who? Kings like David. Kings like Solomon. Ultimately, the lion of the tribe of Judah. King Jesus himself, the king of kings, will come from him. Now look at verse 13. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. So God showed up in some kind of material form. We don't know what that is. Um, he manifested himself that way in some bodily form. And then it says he left. Was it the angel of the Lord? We don't know. It doesn't say. Look at verse 14. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. So this pillar with, with oil and drink, uh, it's an, uh, the drink offering is, a, is, is found throughout the scriptures. And, and it carries the idea of, of being poured out. The drink offering was wine, and, and you would take this wine and you would pour out in sacrifice uh, before the Lord at his altar. He didn't pour part of it. He didn't say, a little for you, a little for me, a little for you, a little for me. It was all of it. Every bit of it you poured out. Because Paul, Paul spoke about it in the New Testament. He said, Philippians 2, verse 17, but even if I am being poured out, as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Where's Paul writing from? He's writing from jail. Paul saw his life as a drink offering. And he's, he's literally pouring himself out 
uh, on the altar before God. And then just before he dies, he writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, and he says the same thing, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on me, to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, when you live your life as a drink offering, it's not a sacrifice. It's privilege. To give everything you have means you actually lose nothing. You win. When the old is gone and the new has come, you win. But remember, when God is working, what's going to happen? Satan's going to start opposing. After our greatest spiritual victories is a temptation for our greatest spiritual defeat. And that's what we're going to see in Jacob. Point number five is the crises. The crises, plural. The first crisis was the death of Deborah. Look what happens next, verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for now you have another son. Now listen, these, these sons in, the, in this family were, were a source of contention. You had four women vying for, for Jacob's affection. You had Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah. Rachel, though, she was Jacob's favorite. Unfortunately, she could only have one son. She had Joseph. And now she's having a second son, and she's going through very difficult labor. Look at verse 18. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Wow. Finally, Jacob is following God. He's obeying God. He's doing what God calls him to do. And then his beloved wife, Rachel, dies. Maybe he was saying, God, couldn't you take Zopa? Couldn't you take Bilhah? I mean, Leah's got a bunch of kids. Why not take her? But it says here of Rachel that her soul departed from her body. That's what happens when you die, right? Your body remains here. It's, it's, it's placed in a grave awaiting resurrection. But the real person is not in the body. The real person is what's inside the body. The real person is a, is a living soul that's created in the image of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says that to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. And so immediately after a person dies, a, a, their soul goes to either heaven or to hell. And the Christian who's absent from the body, that Christian is present with the Lord. Well, that's, a, that's a, such an encouraging thing. I don't know if it's that fast or that fast, right? It's just, you're absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. And before Rachel dies, she, she named her son Benoni. What does that mean? It means son of my sorrow. And then she dies. Can you imagine? His name is Benoni, he's son of my sorrow. I've had so much pain, so much suffering. And then she dies. And I guess Jacob figures, well, what she doesn't know won't hurt her. So I'm going to change his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand, because that sounds a whole lot better than son of my sorrow. He's going to have people teasing me, like they teased him all my life, teased me all my life, calling me deceiver and supplanter. I'm going to give him a good name. Son of my honor is what he's saying. 
son of my strength. Benjamin, he's putting in a, in a position of strength. It's in a position of honor. Look at verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, and that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So Jacob died, I'm mean, sorry, Rachel died and she was buried, and that's what we know. How long did Jacob mourn? No clue. You know what we know for sure? He loved her more than he loved anybody else. Which is a bit of irony here, isn't it? Remember, Rachel is the one who said, give me children, plural, or else I die. And so she died after giving her birth to her second child. And now, so you got Deborah who dies, and now Rachel dies. So what does Jacob do? If it's the old Jacob, he does something different than he does now. Look at verse 21. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. What did Jacob do? He journeyed on. He kept going. The love of his life has just died. And he journeyed on. Listen, life goes on. Were there tears? Probably. Was there sorrow? Probably. Was there deep mourning? Probably. Was there emptiness? I'm sure. And, and anybody who's, who has lost a loved one, don't you hate it how you have this, this empty feeling and, and you feel like the whole world is going to stop and you go out of the hospital, or you go out of the hospital's home, or you go out of wherever you're at and, and you're in deep mourning and, and you look around and people are just driving and walking and doing their thing and you want to go, don't you know who just died? I mean, how can I go on with, when I'm just so sad? And life just goes on. Benjamin has been born. He's got a son. He has to move forward. But now another crisis happens. Look at verse 22. And it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Reuben? Reuben's the firstborn. Reuben's supposed to be the leader. Reuben's supposed to be the example. And he does this? Listen, this was an embarrassingly shameful sin. Paul said this is the type of sin that not even the Gentiles do. I mean, you just think, now here's Jacob, right? And you know what he looks at? He looks back at his life and look at his first three sons. You got Reuben. He commits incest. Sons two and three, which ones are those? Simeon and Levi. They're murderers. You think your family's messed up. Listen, no, no family's perfect. It, it will be Jacob's fourth son, Judah, that, that God will bring the promise through. Even though we're going to see in chapters ahead that he's got his own share of problems. Look at 22 again. He says, now the sons of Leah... I'm oh, sorry, now, th now there were 12 sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who was born to him in Padan Aram. And as you go through this list, these are not men who 
are examples of amazingly spiritual men in the history of Israel. These were the sons of a really dysfunctional family whom God will ultimately use greatly. But he doesn't use them because they were faithful. He uses them because he is faithful. He's going to complete his promise. Look at verse 27. Jacob came to his father Isaac at at Mamre, at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Again, there's a bit of irony here. This is where Jacob, or Isaac called Esau. Isaac told Esau to come to this place decades before, and he said, I'm getting ready to die. He didn't know he had decades left to live. I'm getting ready to die, and I want to bestow a blessing on you. And, and then Jacob stole the blessing and ran away. That's what kick-started this whole thing. Verse 28. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. An old man of ripe age and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So think about this now. First Deborah dies, then Rachel dies, then Reuben does what he does, and now his dad dies. And then you got these brothers who were estranged, were enemies, and they come together in unity to serve their father, which happens oftentimes, doesn't it, in funerals. So how do we apply this text? Wow, so many ways. (laughs) I've just got a few here. Number one, put away your idols. We could spend a ton of time wondering about Jacob's family and why they would have idols. And, but listen, ultimately how you got your idols is not nearly as important as what you're doing with them. Put them away. That's what he's saying. Put them away. Get rid of them. Bury them. Burn them. Uh, break them to pieces. All of us have, have idols in, in some way. They, they, they draw our attention to, to them rather than, than to the Lord. Our hearts uh, are desperately wicked. In fact, when you get rid of one idol, then there's two waiting to join where they take the place where that one left off. And it's not a one-time occurrence of, okay, I just put my idols away once. It's literally moment by moment by moment. It is a battle for your time and your mind and your devotion. Get rid of anything that is stealing your affections away from the God who called you. Number two, put on new garments. You can't just say, well, I put off my idols and so I'm good. Like you have to replace them with something. Garments in the scriptures speak of, about the way we live our lives. He's saying put off the garments of bad behavior and then replace those garments with good behavior, righteous behavior. Ephesians 4 speaks of this, of this at length and it really goes into detail. And he's like, put off lying. But don't just put off lying, start telling the truth. Stop stealing, put off stealing. Start working hard. Stop taking. Start giving. Stop saying worthless things and start saying words that will build up and edify and equip and extend grace to people. He says, get rid of the bitterness and the the wrath and the anger and the clamor and the slander and all the malice. What do I replace it with? Replace that with kindness. Replace it with forgiveness. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. But it's not just a matter of getting rid of your idols. You have to put on the new garments, right? So new garments of a righteous life. Well, how in the world can I do that? Point number three, 
Receive God's sufficient grace. Receive God's sufficient grace. You know, as we look at the life of Jacob, we've seen him make just some awful decisions. And these decisions have had terrible consequences. Listen, I could look out here and if we had the time and we just had everybody stand up on stage and just bear all, that's us. We've made decisions that have terrible consequences. And so what we tend to do is beat ourselves up about it, right? We beat ourselves up about our past sins. We wallow in it. Listen, if beating yourself up was helpful, I'd help you. <laughs> right? I mean, if beating yourself was up was helpful, then we'd all help you. But instead, we have to deal with our sin biblically. Confess it. Forsake it. Turn from it. Place your burdens on him because he loves you. If there's grace for Jacob, don't you think there's grace for you? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. But just because new things have come doesn't mean you're immune to the new storms that are going to gather around your life. The difference with Jacob is that now he's walking through storms with El Shaddai. The God who's almighty. The God who will promise to provide. And that's true for you as well. If you know Christ, there is no crisis that you will ever have to walk through alone. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. All that you will ever need is found in him. So what should you do? Point number four, be a drink offering. Whatever God has called you to do, do it and he will provide for you. And just really quickly, I want to draw your attention to verse 5 and verse 21. In verse 5, God commanded him, and Jacob made the commitment to obey God's command to go. And you know what it says? They journeyed on. They, journeyed, they kept going. Then, then you see in 21, the love of his life has died. And what did he do? He journeyed on. Why? Because he's no longer living for himself. He has poured out his life as a drink offering to God. He is no longer his own. He has been bought with a price and he is making the choice to glorify God with his body. God doesn't want just part of you. He wants all of you. He doesn't want some of your drink. He wants literally all of your drink. And the best thing you can do is pour out your life before him. And the last one, point number five, remember Benjamin. And you go, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, Jesus said that all of the Old Testament was about him. So if all the Old Testament was about him, then Benjamin was about him as well. And Rachel names him Ben-Onai. Jacob changes his name to Benjamin. Ben-Onai, son of my sorrows. Benjamin, son of my right hand. By the way, that's just like Jesus. This same Jesus, who Isaiah calls a man of sorrows, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And so to remember Benjamin is to see Christ. Man of sorrows, we're getting ready to sing, we're in two minutes. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. If you have never trusted Christ before, I cannot imagine a better time than right now. Our Father, thank you so much for, for Benjamin, the Son of Sorrows, the Man of Sorrows, who's now Benjamin the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who 
has filled that role perfectly. Now, Father, I pray as we sing to you that it would be a sacrifice of praise. It would be an offering, a drink offering, pour out a commitment to you to do what you've called us to do, knowing that we may not even know the resources yet, but trusting that you are El Shaddai, that you are my provider, that you will provide abundantly for all that we need. And so, Father, use us, shape us, mold us, make us more like your son. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.